You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Bob, thanks for leading us in, in prayer. I just, I love, I love to hear Bob pray. I've learned a lot about prayer, but hearing Bob pray, um, because I think the way he prays is an example to us of, of praying in light of Scripture, allowing Scripture to inform the gospel, to inform how he, he prays. And, and so I just, I love, I love the times where Bob just gets to lead us in doing that. So Bob, thank you for leading us in that way today. And now we have the privilege of opening up our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. So if you have a Bible with you, make your way to the gospel according to Luke chapter 9. Our text for this morning is verses 51 through 62. The gospel according to Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 51 through 62. And as you're making your way there, I want to begin by asking you to consider this question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Yeah, that's a term we, we use sometimes to express discipleship or what it means to be a Christian. But what does that mean? We can use terms like that and expressions like that. But what does that actually entail? Obviously, Jesus isn't in his bodily form walking on earth any longer. So how do we follow him? We're not following him the same way that the disciples did. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? If somebody was to ask you that question, how would you answer it? What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, church, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62, it's a, it's a pivotal passage in this entire book. In many ways, this single passage this morning is the turning point of the entire story, as you will see in just a moment. It is, it is the hinge in which this entire rest of the story hangs on. And what occurs at this point in the life of Jesus and his disciples will help us answer that question, what does it mean to follow Jesus. This passage this morning is going to help us clarify that important question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So if you would look with me now at Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, I want to read now God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, 
Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. May God bless the preaching of his word. If we were to just take a moment and think about what we've seen so far, here's what we've discovered in Luke's gospel. Jesus came to earth to fulfill a specific mission, a mission that was ordained by God. And what Luke does in his gospel is that he portrays this certain mission in, in, in a very particular way that we're to, we're to catch, and we see it very clearly today. He, he pictures the, the mission of Jesus as Jesus on a journey. Jesus is on a journey, a journey to fulfill the plan of God and a journey to fulfill the promises of God. And this journey will eventually take him to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, all the climactic drama will take place and the mission will be accomplished. See, once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he will be victimized and vindicated. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he will experience humiliation and exaltation. And what happens to Jesus in Jerusalem defines for us what it means to follow him. So we're coming back to that question. What does it mean to follow him? Well, what happens to Jesus in Jerusalem will define for us what it means to follow him. So in order to think about this passage and to help allow this passage to answer that question, I want to break this text down into two sections. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. Verses 51 through 56, we see his journey to the cross. Verses 57 through 62, our journey from the cross. His journey to the cross, our journey from the cross. Let's begin verses 51 through 56, his journey to the cross. And I want to draw your attention once again to verse 51. Look again at this verse. I, I need to make you aware of this. This single verse is one of the most important lines in the entire gospel of Luke. Like every word of the gospel of Luke is inspired by God. Every truth is important, but there are certain sentences and verses that are climactic and everything hinges on. And verse 51 is one of those verses. And if we're not careful, we can just move right past it thinking this is just background information. But what is communicated in this single verse, there is so much theology and this single verse gives direction to the rest of the book. So look again at verse 51. Luke tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. Oh, there is so much in that single sentence, beginning with how how Luke begins. When the days drew near, if you could translate that differently, it would say this, when the time for fulfillment had arrived. That's what it's actually communicating in the Greek. Is that when the time for fulfillment had arrived, this isn't just Luke giving us a transitional sentiments. Oh yeah, at this particular point, Jesus said, hey boys, it's time to go to Jerusalem. No, when the time for fulfillment had arrived, it's, it's that day on the calendar. The time for fulfillment has arrived. The time for what fulfillment? We're told when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Anywhere else in the Gospel of Luke, and in the sequel to, to Luke, the book of Acts, anytime that word is used outside of this con- alongside of this context, it's always speaking of the ascension. It is time for Jesus to ascend. But is he just going to all of a sudden, like Elijah, just be taken up into heaven? No. His ascension will begin with his death, his burial. And his resurrection. And then he will ascend. So what Luke is telling us. It's that time. It's that time for him to die. To be raised. And to return into heaven. Where he will be seated at the right hand. Of the father. And then we're told. That because this time. Was at hand. Jesus set his face. To go to Jerusalem. Oh, the richness of that phrase. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Most likely, Luke is alluding to Isaiah 57, which speaks of the, of the suffering servant, the, the one that everybody thought would, would be the Messiah. And it says that he set his face like flint. So when it says he set his face to Jerusalem, there's resolve, there's determination. It's not just saying Jesus just said, okay, time to go to Jerusalem. He is determined. You could see it in his eyes. It's time. The time has come. I'm going. Nothing's going to stop me. It's, it's time. The time for me to die, to be raised, and to ascend has come. And if you recall, back in chapter 9, verse 22, when Jesus informed his disciples for the first time, he told them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he tells them that's going to happen. And then we come to the Mount Mount of Transfiguration and there not only is is Jesus' appearance radiating the glory of God, but but two people appear with him, Moses and Elijah, and we're told that these two men were talking with Jesus about his departure, his exodus, and Luke writes, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. So let's put all the pieces together. Jesus says, guys, In the near future, I am going to be mistreated by the rulers of of the synagogue, by by the religious leaders, by the political leaders of our day. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about that day. And they're not just talking about what's going to happen. They say all that's going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. So guess what we know now? Jerusalem is that place. 
Jerusalem is that place where all of this is going to happen. Jerusalem will be the place in which Jesus will be falsely accused. He will be tried as a criminal. And he will be executed on a Roman cross. And all of this will take place according to the plan of God to save his people from their sins. And Jerusalem will be the place where Jesus will be raised. He will be raised from the grave after three days. He will appear to over 500. And Jerusalem will be the place where they will see Jesus ascend into the clouds. But at this particular time, Jesus is about to make his way to Jerusalem to accomplish this. So Jerusalem is going to be that place where all of this is going to take place. And now Jesus says, it's time. And he's making his way there. And beginning in verse 51, all the way through chapter 19, we travel with Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So that's why this verse is so important, not just theologically, but literarily, this is a hinge. From this point, verse 51 of chapter 9, all the way through chapter 19, we are going with Jesus to Jerusalem. And what we discover in these 10 chapters is material that for the most part can only be found in Luke's gospel. See, Matthew and Mark wrote similar, uh, share similar stories. But if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize that the majority of what we read from this point through chapter 19 is only found in Luke's gospel. Matthew and Mark say a lot about what happened up until Jesus gets to Caesarea Philippi, and then he makes his way to Jerusalem, and then they pick up with when he gets to Jerusalem. But they don't share a lot in between. Luke slows down the story. And every step Jesus is taking for 10 chapters, he says, while we were there, while we were on our way there, this happened. So keep that in mind as we read all the stories that are coming for the next few months, really. 10 chapters. It's all going to be in light of what's happening or going to happen in Jerusalem. And as Jesus makes a decisive move to Jerusalem, he's going to embark on new territory that has not been mentioned up to this point. For example, look at verses 52 and 53. Luke informs us that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, time does not permit for me to explain the complicated relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. In a few weeks, when we come to chapter The end of chapter 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan, I will take time to explain the history between these two groups. Let's just say for today, there is mutual animosity and hate between them. It's not just something that several generations ago, their, their grandparents disliked each other. There is still a real animosity between these groups. Jews equally hate Samaritans. Samaritans equally hate the Jews. And if you look on the map, where Jesus was located and where Jerusalem is located, guess what's in between? Samaria. 
And most Jews went around. Jesus is now going to make his way through. And he sends some people ahead of time to ask for help. Remember, Jesus doesn't have a place to lay his head. So he sends these guys ahead of time to provide for them. And yet, this is what we're told, that once they arrive, they are rejected. The Samaritans were not willing to help Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, and his Jewish disciples. He, they were not at, at all going to be a part of helping this Jewish Messiah and his Jewish disciples go to Jerusalem. Because here's another thing you need to know about the Samaritans. Not only do they hate the Jews, they hate Jerusalem. The last thing they're going to do is, oh yeah, we'll open up our homes to this Jewish Messiah and his Jewish disciples on their way to Jerusalem. I said, no. Tell, tell your master, we're not interested. See, the, 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 the Samaritans wanted nothing to do this with this. And look what happens next, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, before we jump all over James and John for suggesting such a thing, first of all, maybe you've had that thought before with someone, you know, Lord, this would just be an ideal time just to, you know, rid the world of this person. But before we jump down their throats and think, how in the world could you suggest such a thing? Keep two things in mind. Remember what James and John just saw only a few weeks ago. They got to behold the glory of Jesus as he will appear when he comes again. And they're thinking, you guys dare dishonor the glory of the Savior? They're probably remembering the words of John the Baptist, the one who comes after me. He's not only going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. And he's coming with the winnowing fork in his hand. And he's going to throw the chaff into the fire. So when they say, can we bring down fire? They're saying, Jesus, you, this would be a good time. It would make sense that you do that now. And we must not forget who else was on that mountain with Jesus that day? Elijah. And if we recall from 2 Kings chapter 1, there was a situation in which Elijah was opposed by enemies. And the only thing he could do to, to be able to accomplish the purpose of God is he called down fire and 50 people were consumed. And you wonder if James and John were saying, if Elijah could do it and Jesus is far greater than bring down the fire. But obviously, James and John were not thinking correctly because Jesus didn't sign off on their plan, did he? He didn't say, that's a great idea, guys. Let's go with that. No. We're told in verse 55 and 56 the following. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Jesus rebuked them. You remember last week, the disciples had the audacity to argue about who's the greatest, and Jesus corrected them, but it didn't say he rebuked them. Do you know the last time we see that Jesus rebuked them? Just a few verses up, 
when the demon who was throwing the boy to the ground, he rebuked him. He rebuked those demons. He rebuked the, the wind and the waves. This is not just some small little Jesus that's saying, now guys, you're not thinking correctly. Jesus was like, enough. No more. You're supposed to feel the weight of this. He rebuked them. Now why? Why rebuke them? Well, I think there are a number of reasons that he would rebuke them. First and foremost, the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation to the enemies of God, not judgment. Think about this. Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem so that he could receive the wrath of heaven in the place of God's enemies. We must not forget Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to receive the wrath of heaven in the place of his enemies. And what does James and John say? On the way to the cross, Jesus, why don't you take out your enemies? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't? <laughs> See, Jesus kept going to the cross where he would receive the wrath of God in the place of his enemies. See, what James and John wanted for the Samaritans was not in keeping with the, the purpose in which Jesus came. It, it was not to accomplish the will and purpose of God. There's another reason. That their thinking was wrong and Jesus should have rebuked them. As disciples, they're called to follow in the steps of their master, which was to take up a cross and die. See, not only is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, but do you remember what happens in verse 23? We, I read to you a minute ago, 22, where Jesus tells them for the first time, guys, I, I am going to be killed and I'm going to be raised. But then he turns around and says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Take up your cross. And did you notice how James and John, in this passage, look, look again at, at, at verse 54. Did you notice how James and John spoke of their ability to bring judgment on God and on the enemies of God? It wasn't just that they said, hey, Jesus, could you call down fire? Do you want us to? Now, at first we can think, well, they don't have the power to do that. Not so fast. Turn to the book of Acts, and there's times where Peter and Paul in the book of Acts are, have the authority to do such things, cause people to be blind, do a number of things like that. See, the problem wasn't that they were out of line in thinking they had the ability to do that. The problem with their line of thinking is it didn't match the mission of the Savior, Okay, Jesus, you're going, you're going to Jerusalem to die? You're going to die on a cross? Okay, great. Well, we'd just like to call fire down from heaven on the enemies. Do you see the inconsistency there? It's like, listen, if you follow me, you're following me to the cross. That's where I'm going. That's where you must go. But there's another reason their thinking was wrong. It didn't reflect the ethic of love in which Jesus called his disciples to follow. See, Jesus calls all of his disciples to love their enemy. Go back and look at chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. For time's sake, I won't read it all here, but do you remember what Jesus says? Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. They obviously had already forgotten that. 
As a disciple, they were called to love their enemy. So then that brings us to this place for us to say, okay, what do we take away from this? Disciples obviously were not understanding all that Jesus was seeking to do. How do we apply this to our life? What do we take away from it? And most importantly, what does this passage up to this point teach us about what it means to follow Jesus? Well, to start with, we must acknowledge that Jesus came to save the enemies of God, whom we are counted among that number. Every person here, you, were an object of God's wrath and an enemy of God. That's what scripture says, Ephesians chapter 2. Everyone is born in opposition to God and are enemies of God, therefore deserving the judgment of God. And yet, God does not give us what we deserve as his enemies. Listen to these wonderful words from Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hear this. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friends, listen. Instead of treating us as we deserve, Jesus came to die in our place so that he would receive the wrath of God, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled, and that we who were once enemies can now be his friend. That's what's at work in this passage. That's what it means, first and foremost, to follow Jesus. And because Jesus fulfilled this mission and brings and offers salvation that must dictate how we interact with others. See, the mission of Jesus must be our mission, which means this is what it means to follow Jesus outside of realizing what Jesus has done for us, though we were enemies. It means we respond to others the same way Jesus did. So we spread the reconciling grace of Jesus to every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's how we follow Jesus, is we spread this good news about the reconciling grace of Jesus to people everywhere. And when we turn to Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, there is this line that is a very important line that really kind of sets the trajectory for the book of Acts. Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And you know what the rest of the book of Acts does? It unfolds along the lines of Acts 1.8. Chapters 1 through 7 is about how the good news of Jesus spreads throughout Jerusalem and Judea. You know what 8 through 12 is? The gospel then goes to Samaria. And then 13 through 28, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth because it makes it to Rome. And Rome is the seat of the world. See, to follow Jesus is to take on the mission of Jesus. 
think it's good for us to remember the, our, our own history as Christians. The history of Christianity has been one of mission and at times even martyrdom for the cause of Christ. See, we are a people who are compelled to share about our king who died in the place of his enemies. You realize how radical that is? We're called to spread the message about our God, our king, who instead of destroying his enemies, he died in their place. See, our God doesn't call us to jihad. And his followers don't kill to advance his kingdom. Instead, we're willing to lay down our lives for those who oppose his kingdom. That's the difference. But in order to follow Jesus on mission, not only must we take on his mission, we must see his kingdom as our top priority. And I think that's the point then of verses 57 through 62. Our journey now from the cross. Here in this section, we're informed by Luke that as Jesus was making his way down the road towards Jerusalem, he encountered three different individuals. And by encountering these three individuals and Luke recording this brief encounter with all three of them, we learn a lot more about what it means to follow Jesus, let's look at the first person he encountered, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke informs us that as Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem, he is approached by a person that says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Now, what would you expect Jesus to say at this point? Awesome. Get in line, introduce yourself to the rest of the disciples, and let's go. This guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What was Jesus trying to communicate to this person about what it meant to follow him? I think Jesus was saying, following me means putting me above earthly possessions and earthly pleasures. Hey, you want to you get in line? You're following a Messiah who's not only on his way to Jerusalem to die, he has had no place to lay his head. And if you love earthly possessions and earthly pleasures more than me, you won't make it on this road. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is not assigning his followers to a life of poverty. Sometimes in, in the history of the church, people have interpreted that and have taken vows of poverty. As we will discover later on in Luke's gospel, I think that's horribly wrong. When Jesus says things about money, that's not what he's calling people to do. Like having less makes you more godly. What he's saying to them is, is there any way that the love of earthly possessions and pleasures may be hindering you 
or may hinder you from following me? Because Jesus is saying, here's the reality. I lived a poor life so that you could benefit from my generosity. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 9? He became poor so that we could become rich. And it doesn't mean financially rich. It means so that we could inherit eternity. But he became poor. That's what Jesus is modeling here. So here's the question we must ask ourselves. Or the thing that we must be aware of. We cannot love money and possessions more than we love him. Because if we do, we cannot follow him. Now, I doubt anyone here this morning, if you were asked, do you love earthly possessions more than Jesus, to say, yeah. But functionally, is that true? Are there times in our lives when the bills come due and the money's tight And there is worry and anxiety and all of these things that keep us from, from just focusing on Christ and his kingdom. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Is there anything in my heart that is hindering me from following Jesus when it comes to material possessions or pleasures? And here's what I've learned about times of conviction in my life. If you're aware that this may be an area you need to give more time to, let me encourage you to pray about this because I realize in my own life, when I see something in my own life that needs to change, it's almost like a door is barely cracked. I can only see it a little. And the more I pray, the more the Lord says, let me throw open that door. Look, look at what's in the closet. <laughs> oh, you, you thought it was bad? <laughs> The door was cracked. There's more going on in your heart than you're aware of. But what do we often do? We don't even stop, give enough time to say, Lord, search me and know me. Show me if there is any wicked ways in me. Is there anything that's keeping me from following you wholeheartedly? But that's not all we discover in this passage. Not only can we not put earthly possessions above Jesus. We can't put earthly priorities above Christ and his kingdom if we want to follow him. Look at verse 59 through 60. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but it's for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So you see what's happening here? As he's on this road, first guy says, I want to follow you. Now Jesus turns to someone like he's done a number of times. He did to Peter and James and John, and he did to Matthew at his tax booth. You follow me, but for the first time in Luke's gospel, what do we not see? Every time he's told somebody to follow him, there's, we're told immediately they left their boat, they left their tax booth, they left wherever, and they went. This person says, yeah, yeah, I'll follow you, but let me do this first. You would think Jesus would say, okay, well, just find out where we are later, what town we're in, and join us. And this person actually has a good reason, it appears, to, to not follow him. This person says, Jesus, can I, can I go bury my dead Father? See, this person is making an, an excuse, a good excuse for why they will follow him later. And Jesus tells them that's unacceptable. 
Now, I think it's important that we, we not read into this more than we need to read into. First of all, we need to remember Luke, Luke is having to tell us things in single sentences. So we don't know Jesus' interaction with this guy. And what we also know from Luke's gospel, Jesus has showed incredible compassion for those that have lost someone. We've seen that several times in stories. Jesus saw someone who was grieving and he cared and his heart was moved. So it's not like Jesus is like, well, who cares about your dad and his death? That would be callous. What he's doing is something we've got to understand and see. He's saying the work of my kingdom is far more important than any other activity, even an activity that it would seem that is an excuse not to show up. There there are events in our life that unless someone was, was in the hospital, you would expect them to show up. Young couple here this morning about to get married here soon. And when they do, they probably, because of the gravity of this event, expect those who are in the wedding, those that are their family, to show up unless they're in the hospital. Do you know how weird and frustrating that would be on the day of their wedding if one of the bridesmaids said, yeah, I just kind of had a headache. Or the groomsman was like, you know what? My friends were going camping. I thought I'd do that. I said, you know, there's other days you can, you can, that's an appropriate excuse. But on days like a wedding, this is one of those ones, a funeral, who would tell Jesus? Or who would tell this guy? Oh, no, that's not an acceptable excuse. And Jesus is saying, even the most acceptable excuse is not acceptable when it comes to my kingdom. And here's why he's saying that. It's in light of what he said. Let the dead bury their own dead. Once again, that can sound so harsh. What's he saying? I think Jesus is saying, let those who have no spiritual life take care of the dead. Join me as I go to Jerusalem where I'm going to die so that the dead can have life. That's what Jesus is saying. Let the dead take care of the dead. There are more important things. I'm on my way so that the dead can live again. That is far more important. So get on the road or say, I'm not going to be your disciple. So here's the question for you and me. Do we treat Jesus and his kingdom as our top priority? Not just as a priority, as our top priority. Is making Jesus' kingdom the most important thing in our life? Let me ask it a little differently. Do you make your spiritual life your top priority? Making sure that you spend time with the Lord and, and reading your Bible and prayer, is that your top priority? Or is that one of those things you're like, well, I know how to do it. Maybe one day I'll just have enough time in my schedule where I have nothing else to do, and I'll do that. We're always so busy. But is our spiritual life and our spiritual vitality the top priority? Or is getting things done? And even those things that we may be getting done, are they they good things? Like burying our dead father. But they keep us making excuses and saying, Jesus... Not only can possessions not get in the way, priorities can't get in the way. 
if I'm gonna follow you. There's one last encounter on this road that demonstrates what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 61 and 62. Yet another says, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, Jesus is not being harsh, nor is he telling us to neglect our families. Instead, he's calling us to put him above other people. We can't put our possessions above him. We can't put our priorities above him, and we can't put people above him. Do you say, you want to follow me? I'm first. First in everything. Now, this point of Jesus and what he says about family, we're going to come to this more in the weeks ahead, so I don't want to say a lot here I just want to ask you this question. Is there anyone in your life that because of your relationship with them, that they're allowed to interfere with your devotion to Jesus? Is there anybody in your life because of your relationship with them, they're allowed to interfere with your devotion to Jesus? Young people, can I, can I just talk with you for just a moment? I know how important relationships are. And listen, it, it's, good, it's a good thing to cultivate relationships with people who don't share your faith. It's good for, first of all, it's necessary. You're going to live in a world where everyone doesn't know Jesus. It's good to learn how to relate to those people well. It's even good to cultivate relationships with them. If we're going to be on mission, we, we, we have to have relationships with people. But I want to caution you. You must be careful that you don't allow people from keeping you to be loyal to Jesus. If you fear what others think more than you care about the glory of Christ, you're not going to stay on the road. You're going to get on the road, and you're going to love the Lord to these friends, and at some point you're going to say, y'all go on ahead, Jesus. I I think I'm going to hang out with these people. Is that true of you? Are there there people in your life who are interfering with your relationship with Jesus? Here's one of the things I've observed. There are many reasons people abandon their faith and stop following Jesus. There are many. But one I've observed is people stop following Jesus for relational reasons, not just intellectual reasons. I don't want this group to think I'm weird I don't want them to think I'm hateful according to culture's definition of hate. And if I talk about Jesus, I'm going to lose this friendship. I'm aware that upon looking at these verses this morning, there are some here that you know what it means to put Christ above family. There are some of you here this morning, you know the hardship of being the only believer in your family. 
It weighs on you. It is difficult. You don't read this verse and it's abstract. You read it and it's lively and it's your story. And if that's you, I just want to say, as a church, you're an example to us of what it means to count the cost to follow Jesus. You are a wonderful example of what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to encourage you, you're an example to your unbelieving family members, whether they're aware of it or not. Thank you. Thank you for being faithful to the Savior, even over relational bonds. That's not easy. Listen, as I close out the message, I just want to bring one final point of application that I think it's, it's, it's good to wrap all of this up with this thought. We are those who are following Jesus, not to the cross, but from the cross. See, the disciples were, were going on this journey to the cross. We are those who are following Jesus in light of his death, resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not, we're not going to the cross. We're coming from the cross knowing that God has, has not only died in our place, been raised from the dead, He's given us the Spirit. So we, we need to keep that in mind as we seek to hear these truths and obey these truths. And yet, even though we are coming from the cross, not going to the cross, we are similar to these disciples. Here's how we're similar. Have you noticed up to this point that no matter how much Jesus tells the disciples, they turn around and they mess up. And guess what? You would think this would be the last time this is going to happen. It's not. Almost every situation we've seen so far, we're going to see more scenarios. Going back to last week, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, guess what? They're going to do it the night of the Lord's Supper. <laughs> You would think Jesus' conversation would have ended all. They're still, they're still needing to grow. And we're no different. Listen, none of us here perfectly follow Jesus in this life. Therefore, we should always be aware of our need to follow Jesus more consistently and faithfully. We should all be more aware of where we need to follow Jesus more faithfully and consistently. No one here can say, yep, I got it. Perfect disciple right here. Give me my badge. Let me wear a pin. All of us, all of us have inconsistencies. We believe one thing and we live opposite of what we believe. For some of us, we, we need to spend more time in Scripture making sure our life aligns with Scripture. Let me ask you this question, and this is where I want to close. I think this is an important question to Consider, if someone was to spend time with you and was to listen to you talk, would they come away thinking you're always in the know but never in need of growth? If you were to hang out with you, would they come away thinking you're always in the know but you never talk about where you need to grow? If that's true of you and me, that lacks humility.
Because guess what? All of us have areas that we need to grow. And we must be a community of people that aren't afraid to say, I know the Bible verses, but I'm not living them out. And I need to confess that. And I need prayer. And I need help. Listen, we we are all called to follow Jesus. But we all do this with a limp. We are all following Jesus. But every single one of us here are doing it with a limp. And therefore, when we come together, we are following Jesus with humility, yet we're hopeful. We're honest about our weaknesses, but we're not fixated on our failures. We are a people, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, if this is a race, we've thrown aside everything that hinders us. We have fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and finished the race. That is what it means for us personally and corporately to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May you write its truth now on our heart. And may you help us to be people who for the rest of this day and throughout the week follow you, not perfectly, but follow you with humility and hopefulness as we fix our eyes on you. Do this for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.